Let's respond to God's voice by worshiping him in the beauty of holiness and the splendor of his majesty, singing together hymn number 235, All Glory, Laud, and Honor. 235, please stand. Tonight we're going to be considering our spiritual struggles. We're going to be thinking about the spiritual battles and trials that we face and how God addresses them, how God enables us to face them. And so it might be helpful first, uh, before we think about that, to bring those to our own minds, to bring those before God in prayer. And so we're going to sing them to God uh, together using hymn number 608, To God My Earnest Voice I Raise, which is a hymn from Psalm 142.
we prepare to hear God's word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you address it to us this evening. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's the second Sunday in January. Christmas has come and gone. And most of us, in terms of thinking about the the year, the holidays of the year, the church year, think about Easter next and maybe Lent before that. Historically, though, there have been other holidays between Christmas and Lent. January 6th was Epiphany, and different parts of the church have historically focused on different aspects of Jesus' life during Epiphany. But those different focuses have always been around the theme of the early revelations of who Jesus is. In the Western church, this has developed into a practice of remembering the coming of the Magi to the baby Jesus on the Sunday before Epiphany, that being the first time that Jesus is really revealed to the Gentile nations. And then in the Western church, they've remembered Christ's baptism on the Sunday after Epiphany, another one of the major revelations of who Jesus is to his people. And so this being the Sunday after Epiphany, I thought it might be appropriate to look together at Mark's account of Jesus' baptism and then what follows it. We'll get to that passage. We'll get to our text tonight. But before we do, I want to ask you a question, something I'll ask you to take a minute to think about as we get started. I want to ask, how are you coming in tonight? How are you coming in here and joining us tonight? Back in St. Louis a few years ago, I saw a Christian counselor for a little while while I was going through some difficult things, and he would start every session with that question. I would come in and sit down and look at him, and I always felt a bit uncomfortable as I walked in, and he would smile, and he would look at me, and he would ask, how are you coming in today? And I hated that question. I mean, I really hated it, because I wanted to keep moving, in some ways physically, but especially mentally. I was coming from work, being at work all day. I had been moving and moving. I had been keeping my mind occupied, and I didn't want to stop moving. But that's what he wanted me to do. He wanted me to stop moving and to think about how I was actually doing, about the things that were going on in my life, about how I was feeling, and about where I was at that moment. And I found that unpleasant. But as unpleasant as it might be, as unpleasant as I often found it, I want to start by asking you to stop and to consider, how are you coming in tonight? What has the week been like? What has even your day today been like? What has gone well? What has not gone so well? What has been a blessing to you and what has been a trial? And how do you feel about the week ahead? How do you feel about tomorrow morning? Particularly, I want to ask, what are you not really looking forward to? What are the spiritual struggles that you have faced in the week behind you and that you expect to face in the week ahead of you? What are the spiritual battles that you've come from this past week and that you will return to tomorrow morning? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's that person or that project or that group environment that you don't look forward to whether it's hostile or whether it comes with temptations or whether there's pressure to act unethically in specific ways or even if it's just a typical difficult grind. For whatever reason, you dread going there because when you're there, you feel alone and you feel in a hostile land. Or maybe it's school. It could be what feels like a crushing workload or concepts and lessons that you just can't seem to get or other students who are cruel and self-centered 
cliques and groups in the student body that amuse themselves and make themselves feel better by putting others down. Or maybe you just feel lost in the shuffle and the bustle of it all, and you feel alone and in a hostile land. Maybe it's being at home with your kids. Maybe you're dreading that moment when your spouse heads off to work tomorrow morning and the front door clicks shut, and it's just you and the children. And you know the the trials that you may face, the repetition of the work or the discipline issues with the kids or the insanity that seems to take the children over around 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon. And the door clicks shut that morning and you think about what lies ahead of you and you feel alone and isolated in a hostile land. Maybe it's your marriage or maybe it's something else, but as Sunday evening approaches, our minds often begin to turn to tomorrow morning and to what we are not looking forward to. And to those moments when we, feel, when we will feel alone and under attack. One of my um, favorite sets of action movies, uh, maybe my top favorite set of action movies, is the Bourne Trilogy. Um, it is an action movie, and so it's probably not one for the kids, but it's a, it's a movie series that I enjoy. Um, in the first movie, in the first of the series, we meet Jason Bourne, the main character of them. And we meet him as he's discovered by a small French fishing boat floating in the Mediterranean Sea, unconscious, with two bullets in his back. They pull him onto the ship, and the part-time medic, part-time cook, he seems to do both for them, uh, on the ship, goes ahead and he removes the bullets, and Jason eventually regains consciousness, but he has amnesia. He doesn't know who he is or how he got there. He recovers on the boat over several days. He gets stronger. He eats more. He begins working out and helping out on the ship, but his memory does not come back. We see him at one point staring into a grimy mirror below deck, speaking in several languages that he seems to know, saying to himself, do you know who I am? I do not know who I am. Tell me who I am. If you know who I am, please stop messing around and tell me. The ship eventually comes into port in Marseille. One of the fishermen gives him enough money to travel to Zurich to follow the only lead he has to discover who he is. And Bourne takes the train, and he arrives in Zurich that night. And we see him standing there alone in the street with no money. And it's winter, and the road's covered with snow, and he has nowhere to go. And finally, we see him alone on a bench in a park, trying to sleep. He's alone. He's alone in a hostile land. And he's not quite sure why he's there or what he's really doing. And this is often how we can feel, hopefully not in the extreme physical sense that Jason Bourne feels it in that film, but in a real sense, in a real emotional and spiritual sense. We feel alone, and we feel in a hostile land. Jason Bourne feels that. We feel that. But I wonder how often we consider that Jesus has felt that way as well. Our text tonight is Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 13. And the last verse of that passage is Mark's brief description of Jesus' temptation. It says, simply and to the point, and he, that is Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Matthew and Luke, in their account of the temptation, give a bit more detail about what happened over those 40 days. But Mark, as seems to be his custom, keeps it brief. And we can say a few things about the temptation of Jesus, but one of them would have to be that in the course of his temptation, Jesus felt alone, and he felt that he was in a hostile land. Jesus is without any human companions. He is alone in a very real sense. 
And he's literally in a hostile land. He's in the wilderness, in the desert. And Satan takes that moment to question Jesus about who he really is. Because in Matthew and Luke, we read Satan begin two of his three temptations with the phrase, if you are the Son of God, and then he follows with his temptation. Satan has Jesus in a hostile land, and Jesus is physically alone, and we would imagine for these temptations to be real and to be meaningful that he felt existentially alone. And Satan takes this opportunity to push Jesus to question his identity, to question whether God is really with him the way he claims. To subtly ask, are you really God's son? And so we have Jesus feeling alone in a hostile end, hearing the question of who he is. It's not unlike Jason Bourne standing alone in the street or looking at his reflection in a grimy mirror, asking himself, do you know who I am? And it's not unlike us either. Whether in the office or the classroom or in our homes, we find ourselves feeling alone, even though we may be surrounded by people. We find ourselves feeling that we're in a hostile land, even if it's our own home. And maybe we hear that question, too. The question Jesus heard from Satan that Jason Bourne asks himself, Who am I really? What if I'm not who I think I am? Can I really do what I seem to be called to do here? Our text for tonight helps us begin to see how Jesus was equipped for that situation, and likewise how we are as well. And so with that said, let's now... Hear from our text, Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 13. Please listen carefully. This is God's word for us this evening. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. There's a lot that we could say about the baptism of Jesus in this text. We could easily do a whole series on everything that's going on here. But I want to bring out just one aspect of it tonight. The three synoptic Gospels all record the baptism of Jesus. And in all three, it comes right before his temptation in the wilderness. All three synoptic Gospels bring out a connection between the two by leading from one to the other. And so what's going on there? Well, there are a few things. Three things in particular that I want to point out tonight. There are at least three ways that Jesus, in his baptism, is being equipped for the temptation he'll face in the wilderness. First, he's being told he has the Father's favor. He's told by the Father, with you, I am well pleased. And that's not nothing. It's amazing how much we long to hear that from others, from a parent, from a spouse, from a close friend. And here Jesus hears it from his heavenly Father. Simply and directly and lovingly, he's told, with you, I am well pleased. 
And that matters because that is what he will be tempted to doubt. He will be tempted to feel his position is inadequate. Satan will, temp- will tell him that he's lacking. Satan will tell him that he's ill-equipped for what he's facing. Satan will tell him that he needs bread or that he needs a claim from other people or that he needs power that only Satan can give. That what he has right now is insufficient. But before he faces that temptation, in his baptism, Jesus is told that he has the Father's good pleasure. His Father is pleased with him. And that is enough. That is sufficient. So first, he's told he has the Father's favor. Second, he's identified as God's Son. The Father says, you are my beloved Son, to him. He's told and he's reminded who he is. He is God's Son. And as we saw, that will be another thing the devil will call into question in the wilderness. He will say, if you are the Son of God, as he begins two of his temptations. But before Jesus enters that temptation, he's told, again, who he is. He is God's Son. And third, finally, he's given the Spirit. The Spirit descends on him in visible form. Now, to understand the impact of that, to understand what that means for what he's going to face next, we need to start by correcting two possible misunderstandings of what's going on there. First, we can misunderstand what it means for him to receive the Spirit in this moment. And some traditions in the historic and global church have, based on passages like this one, identified the receiving of the Spirit with baptism so closely that they assume you can't have the Spirit without baptism. But we know that can't be true for a number of reasons, not least of which that Jesus is not without the Holy Spirit for the first 30 years of his life. He had the Spirit even before his baptism. And yet at the same time, the Spirit seems to come on him in a new way at his baptism. And as we think about what that might mean, we need to work through our second possible misunderstanding of what it means when the Spirit descends on Jesus. We often think of the Spirit in a fairly narrow way in how he works in our lives. If we're more systematic in our theology, we may think of the Spirit almost exclusively in terms of its role in converting a sinner, in terms of changing their heart and their mind so that they have faith. And the Spirit does do that. But it's not all that he does. For others of us, we may associate the Spirit with something more like a feeling, as one who draws us close to God in an experiential way, through intimate prayer, through moments of worship, or in some other warm and heartfelt way. And the Spirit does draw us at a deeper level closer to the Father. But again, that's not all that he does. Part of the reason our understanding of the Spirit can be too narrow is because we often think of him only in terms of the New Testament, and we forget to think of him in terms of the Old Testament. If we read of the Spirit falling on Jesus in Mark chapter 1 with with the Old Testament in mind, we would read it very differently than we might otherwise. So what is it like when the Spirit falls on someone in the Old Testament? Well, we see a number of different things happening, but I want to bring out one pattern in particular. In Judges 3, we read that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel, and he went out to war, and the Lord gave the king of Mesopotamia into his hand right afterwards. In Judges 6, we read that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and then we watch in chapter 7 as he goes to war against the Midianites and defeats them. In Judges 11, we read that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and then we watch him go to war with the Ammonites and subdue them before Israel. In Judges 14, we read twice that the Spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson. The first time he tears a lion to pieces that was attacking attacking him, and the second time he goes into battle in Ashkelon and he strikes down his enemies. 
In 1 Samuel 11, we read about the Ammonites besieging a city of the people of God. And when Saul, Israel's king, hears of it, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul. And then we watch him muster an army and lead God's people into battle, defeating the Ammonites. And in 1 Samuel 16, after David's anointed king by Samuel, we read that the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. And in the next chapter, we see David going into battle with Goliath. Over and over again, the Spirit falls on someone to prepare them for battle. And so when we read in Mark 1 about the Spirit descending on Jesus, we should not be surprised that two verses later, we're told that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, where he then does battle with Satan. Jesus is equipped for battle by the Spirit. And so we see how in his baptism, Jesus is prepared and equipped for what he will face in the wilderness. He's told of the Father's favor. He's identified as God's Son. He's clothed with the Spirit. And with that, he is not alone and he is not ill-equipped. He has the Father and the Spirit with him, and with them, he's equipped for the battle that he'll face. Satan will repeatedly try to convince him that he is alone, to convince him that he is ill-equipped. But he's not. And his baptism reminds him of that. He is well-equipped, and so he's able to defeat his adversary. For those of you who have seen the Bourne identity, you know that it does not end with Jason Bourne sleeping on a park bench, and it's not the story of a helpless man wandering around Europe wondering out loud who he is. He spends that night trying to sleep on the bench in Zurich, and at some point in the middle of the night, two police officers approach him. They begin to question him and to demand his identification, and he tries to explain to them what's going on, but they won't listen. Then one of the officers takes out his baton and starts to come at Jason Bourne with it, and Bourne grabs the end of the baton. And then there's this great moment. Bourne holds on to the baton. (laughs) It it is a great scene, yeah. (laughs) Bourne holds on to the baton, and his eyes narrow, and his head sort of tilts to the side. And he looks again at the two officers, and he remembers that he knows how to fight. He remembers that whoever he may be, he is someone who is equipped for battle. He remembers that he has the, has the resources to defeat his enemies. You see, what we've known all along if we were watching the movie, and what Jason Bourne is just remembering a faint echo of, is that he's actually a trained assassin. He's well equipped for battle, even if many ways, in many ways he's forgotten it. The rest of the scene happens quickly, but within 15 seconds, Bourne has disarmed both officers, he's knocked them unconscious, he's disassembled one of their weapons, and he's fleeing from the scene. Bourne remembers that he's well-equipped. Bourne remembers that he's been given something that makes him sufficient for battle. And that is the turning point of the first section of the movie. Jason Bourne will face many challenges and battles ahead, but he goes into them knowing that he's prepared for them, knowing that he's equipped for them. That's not unlike what we see with Jesus in Mark 1, and it's not unlike the situation we face in our lives as well. There are a number of places in Scripture where we can turn to learn about the meaning of our baptism, and a number of theological lenses which we can view it through. But it was not uncommon in the early church for Christians and theologians to both focus especially on the baptism of Jesus as a central picture of Christian baptism and as an explanation of what happens to Christians in their own baptism. And that connection helps us to see how this text relates to us. Like Jesus in the wilderness, we face trials and temptations. Like Jesus, we face a spiritual enemy who tells us that we are alone and ill-equipped. But also, like Jesus, we too have been baptized for battle. So what does that mean? 
Well, first, it means that like Jesus, we have the, the Father's favor proclaimed over us. In our baptism, it has been declared that in Christ we are well-pleasing to God. He delights in us. He is with us. We go into the everyday battles of life and our common struggles of faith with the Father's love. How often do you think about that? When you feel alone and in a hostile land and you face temptation, do you consider that in Christ you have the Father's good pleasure? That his approval of you was announced at your baptism? Because that is one of the things that happens at your baptism, and it is one of the things that Satan would prefer that you would forget when he's tempting you. So first, we have the Father's good pleasure. Second, we have union with the Son. We're united with Christ. We are one with him. We have a close and intimate bond with the one who has already gone into the wilderness and fought spiritual battles there and defeated our adversary, the devil. He is with us and he is strong. Do you stop to consider that often? That Christ into whom we are baptized has promised to be with his people always, even to the end of the age. Do you think about how in those, that in those moments when you most feel isolated, that Christ is with you? Again, it was declared publicly at your baptism. He promised that he would be. Do you believe that it's true? And third, we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit who defeated the king of Mesopotamia and subdued the Ammonites, the Spirit who empowered Othniel to fight off the Midianites and enabled Samson to tear a prowling lion to pieces, the Spirit by whom Jesus fought off Satan in the wilderness and the Spirit who ultimately raised Christ from the dead. That same Spirit rests on us. He rests on all of God's people, but His presence is especially linked to our baptism. With the favor of the Father our union with the Son and the empowerment of the Spirit, we're baptized for battle. Our baptism, like Christ, is to prepare us for the spiritual battles that we face in life. It reminds us that we are not alone. It equips us for the struggles that we face. And as sort of a side note, this is another reason to be thankful for infant baptism. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not the only reason why we have infant baptism. It's not a proof, really, in and of itself. But it's another good reason to be thankful for the biblical doctrine of infant baptism. Because spiritual battles are not only for adults. And those of you with children know that. I have been amazed at how early on we can see spiritual battles going on in our children's hearts. We can see that moment in their eyes when they're deciding whether they're going to obey or rebel. Whether they'll love another or sin selfishly. It's not that our children cannot grow in the faith without baptism, but if it's available to them, why should it be kept from them? If there is any grace in baptism, if there's any equipping for the life of faith, if there's any empowerment for the spiritual battles ahead, why would we not want to give that to our children as well? The infant baptism of covenant children is many things, but one of them is an empowerment for the spiritual battles they will face from a remarkably early age. We should be thankful to God that he does not reserve this empowerment for adults only. But of course, it's not just for our children, but it's also for us as well. It is for the situations we face every day. When we find ourselves feeling alone and in a hostile land, the devil really does want to convince us that we are alone. He wants us to believe that we are ill-equipped for battle, that we are helpless before his assaults, but our baptism tells us that we are not. And so when we face battles at our jobs, God is with us. Whether it's a person who's often tearing you down or an an overall hostile work environment, whether it's a set of responsibilities that fill you with anxiety or just the normal results of the curse on work from the fall, whatever it is, God is with you. 
You face spiritual opposition in the workplace, but you have been baptized for battle. You can face that battle now with Christ. When we face frustration or isolation or exclusion at school, the devil may be clamoring for our souls to defeat us, to convince us, to bow to his ways. But when we face that, we are not alone. You go with God. The Father delights in you. The Son is by your side and the Spirit supports you. You are baptized for battle. And when it's 4.30 and the kids are cranky and your spouse says that they will be late and dinner turns out wrong and you're tempted to bitterness or to despair or to being overly harsh with the children, in that moment you are not alone. As he tried to care for his disciples, the son faced similar temptations as you do, and he is with you. Your father calls you beloved. The spirit empowers you to fight temptation. You are baptized for battle. Our battles may seem more mundane than those of Gideon or Samson, of Saul or David, or of Jason Bourne for that matter. But the scriptures tell us that they are not. The scriptures tell us that in our spiritual battles, our everyday spiritual struggles, we do battle with cosmic powers, with spiritual forces of evil, and that it is a battle for which we are equipped. Now, don't get me wrong. This equipping does not mean that our battles are not difficult. Jesus' 40 days in the desert were not a walk in the park, not to mention the rest of his earthly ministry and his death. Jason Bourne's life did not get simple or easy once he realized he was an elite warrior. And our spiritual struggles and battles remain just that. They remain struggles. They remain battles. But they are struggles in which we are not alone. They are battles for which we are well equipped. Whatever battles you are facing, do not forget that you are baptized. You are a Christian. You go into battle with the Father's good pleasure, with the Son, your elder brother, who has traveled these paths before you by your side, with the Spirit's mighty power upon you. You can therefore go boldly into battle, knowing that you bear the name of the triune God. You are not alone. God is with you. Amen. As we come up for communion after the anthem that will be sung, our first uh, communion hymn will be from your handout, Baptized into Your Name Most Holy. God is indeed present with us, and he empowers us in many ways. We've just talked about one of those many ways, which is baptism, and we are now coming to another. We are now coming to the Lord's Supper. And in light of these provisions that God has made for us, it is right for us to give him thanks and praise. And so let's take a moment in prayer to do that. Let's pray together. Most merciful Father, we give thanks to you for the goodness and love which you have made known to us, first in creation. For in your wisdom you made all things and you sustained them by your power. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. And so we praise you first because you created us in your own image and likeness. And second, because even after we rebelled against you, you freed us from the enslavement of sin through your only Son. You gave him in love to be made man, like us in all things except sin, that by his death and resurrection he might bring again life to the world. Lord, we are not able in our dullness to understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of your love, but true to the commandment of Jesus Christ our Lord, we come to this table, which he has left for us, to be used in remembrance of his death until he comes again. 
Here we declare and we witness before each other and before the world that by him alone we have received liberty and life. By him alone you claim us as your children and heirs. By him alone we have access to your favor, freely shown. By him alone we are raised into your kingdom, there to eat and drink with you and the Son at the most joyful table of eternal life. Lord our God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this as my memorial. In the same way, also after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it as my memorial. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come forward and receive them, that the body and blood of our Lord may strengthen and nurture you in his grace.
The word of the Lord from Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hands of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hands of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And from Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Please rise for our final hymn, O Church Arise.
As we go from here to face the week ahead, go with God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you all peace. Amen.